0: Uh, Google tells me that there is a plant, apparently, it's native to sort of Indonesia, I think the island of Sumatra in particular, Um, it will have some fancy Latin name, they've all got those, haven't they? But its common name is the corpse flower. Um, It's not a very nice name for a flower, really, is it? A corpse flower. Um, And and ladies, you would certainly not want to get bought a bunch of these, Um, (laughs) Because not only is the name not very nice, but actually they don't look very nice. They don't smell very nice either. In fact, they're called corpse flowers because when the flower opens up, there's this kind of bright red bloom in the middle of it that looks and smells, apparently, like rotten meat. Get, 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 get that. Um, so you won't want these on Valentine's Day. Um, but actually... If you were one of the flies or one of the the, the carrion beetles that pollinate these plants, they would be a very attractive flower for you. Um, in, In other words, these corpse flowers, they are just a great big deception for insects. That's pretty much what they are. They're designed to look like rotting meat and smell like rotting meat in the hope that insects will land on them and pollinate them, thinking that they are bits of of rotten meat. But it's all a deception. It's a sham. It's a con. It's a put-on. These these poor insects, they're lured in with the promise of something good, a, a nice piece of rotten meat. But then it just fails to deliver. It's a big deception and actually if you were to talk to some people about their experience of religion including the Christian religion they might say something similar it's all a big deception they've been promised that becoming a Christian is going to be it's going to be glory all the way it's going to mean heaven now heaven on earth but then some setback has happened some illness has struck some tragedy has come home and, and, and the, the disappointment has been too much to handle and they've given up on what they were told Christianity was as being all just a great big con, a big deception. In, in other words, there are deceivers around in the area of religious faith, just like it appears there are deceivers around in the plant kingdom as well. Who, who knew? Um, but of course, we know already that there are deceivers around, even in the area of Christian faith, don't we? We know that because John has written this letter of one John to people who are on the receiving end of that. He's called them antichrists in chapter two. He's, he's written this letter because these con men, these, these deceivers, they're peddling false teaching. Uh, about Christ. They deny the truth of who Jesus is, specifically his deity, uh, and they're failing to live distinctive lives for Christ as well, claiming that either sin doesn't exist for them or or that it doesn't matter so they can live how they like. Uh, And all this false teaching that they're peddling to the churches has had the effect of undermining these Christians' confidence that they really are Christians. And, And so John has been trying to sort of steady them to assure them, to give them confidence that their faith in Christ is is real and and genuine. As he puts it in in chapter 5, verse 13, he wants them to know that they have eternal life. And and so what we've seen him doing in in this letter is is kind of showing them the signs of what real Christianity looks like, both the beliefs and the behaviours that mark out true christians because as as we've seen real faith in christ makes a difference to how you live and, and that emphasis on on how you live was was that was very much the focus in the first half of the chapter wasn't it last week uh, a couple of weeks ago now wasn't it um Uh, We saw that in in those those first verses, uh, and John framed it in terms of family likeness, didn't he? Do you remember that? Verse 10 is kind of the summary. By this it is evident, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. In other words, our living, it displays whose family we belong to if you like, God's or Satan's. So whose family likeness are you displaying? That was kind of the question that went begging last time, wasn't it? But did you notice, look, the end of verse 10 there, because he adds something, doesn't he? Nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, it's not just by our living that we display whether we're God's children or not, but also by our loving if you like, by whether we love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the theme that he's now unpacking in this last half of of chapter 3. In other words, to to be God's children, as, as real Christians are, is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's to be bound by family ties, if you like. Love for fellow Christians is a sign that your faith is real. So, the question that goes begging this week then is, are you bound by family ties? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, thus showing that your faith in Christ is real? You see, So we're going to take a love test. Okay, Have a look with me at uh, verses 11 to 15, where we see, first of all, he's telling us what love is not here. And it's exemplified in Cain. I hadn't realized till the end of this week that actually the Bible bite was going to be about Cain as well. That's worked quite fortuitously, really, because you've, you've been sitting in on that as, the, as we had that for the kids. Um, so have a, look at verse, um, uh, have a look at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteousness. It's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? That the first child to be born into the world was a murderer, as Cain, and the second child to be born was his victim, his brother Abel. They both had the same physical father, of course, Adam, but they both had different spiritual fathers. Verse 12, one was a child of God, the other was a child of the evil one. And they both showed which family they belonged to by what they did. Um, Genesis chapter 4 tells us the, the story, of course, and as you heard in the Bible today, it's a story, isn't it, of, of two brothers bringing an offering to the Lord. And although both of the brothers brought an offering, it seems that only one of the brothers really loved the Lord. And that's seen in the offering that, that each one brought abel according to genesis 4 brings an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions in other words he gave god the best that he had right the more costly gift which expressed his devotion to god his love for god cain on the other hand brought an offering of the fruit of the ground in other in other words he brought some of his produce yeah, to God. It was, a, it was an offering that cost him very little. It was pretty superficial. Um, it expressed little devotion, little love for God. And the God who looks on the heart of the giver before he looks at the gift had regard for Abel and his offering, we're told, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard, as how Genesis 4.4 4 puts it. So the problem wasn't with the offering, but it was with the heart of the giver. Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God because it came from a heart that loved God. Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable to God because it came from a heart that didn't love God. And in that sense, as verse 12 of our reading puts it, Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's deeds were righteous. So it wasn't about favoritism. Okay, it was about loving obedience. Abel loved God and so brought him an acceptable sacrifice. Cain didn't love God and so didn't offer him an acceptable sacrifice. In fact, Genesis 4 also tells us that God explained his response to Cain. He pleaded with him that if he, if he did what was right, then he too would be accepted. But Cain stubbornly refuses. He, he wants to come to God on his own terms, he wants to bring to God what he wants, not what God wants. And and if you know the story or if you're here for the Bible bite, (laughs) uh, um, you'll know his his rebellion against God spills over into hatred of uh, Abel because Abel was regarded by God. And and this causes Cain to rebel even more against God by murdering Abel. He hated Abel. He wanted Abel out of the way. So he, he simply took his life. And in doing so, of course, he is further rebelling against God, isn't he? Because he's playing God in in taking Abel's life. Because, of course, God alone is the giver and taker of life. But Cain decides he's going to take life. He's going to take that role of God into his own hands simply because he couldn't cope with his brother being around as a perpetual reminder of his own rebellion. His rebellion against God causes him to hate his own brother, so he simply gets rid of him. That's the end of verse 12, isn't it? Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteousness. were righteous. Do you see, do you see the point? Cain and Abel, um, Cain hated Abel because Abel loved God, and Cain didn't meaning that Abel acted in obedience to God, whereas Cain acted in rebellion to God. Abel acted righteously, Cain acted evilly. And that anger against God boiled over into hatred against Abel, and so he killed him because he just wanted him out of the way. And friends, it's been the same ever since. Right, verse 10 reminds us that everyone belongs to one of two spiritual families we are either children of God or we're children of the evil one and which family we belong to is seen by whether we practice righteousness or not whether our living and our loving displays family likeness and Genesis 4 reminds us that ever since the first two humans were born on the planet that humanity's been divided into those two spiritual families and as it was for Cain So it's been ever since that the children of the evil one hate the children of God and want them out of the way. That's what John tells us in verse 13, isn't it? Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Friends, this is why our Christian brothers and sisters are are being persecuted right around the world as we speak, isn't it? That's why there's 100,000 in forced labor camps in North Korea. Um, it's why they're uh, often murdered on the spot in countries like Somalia. It's why baptism is a crime punishable by death in parts of Afghanistan. It's why Christian women are raped and forced to marry Muslim men in Pakistan. It's why citizens of the Maldives uh, uh, lose their citizenship if they become Christians. It's why people who have converted from Hinduism to Christianity in parts of India have often been attacked and killed by their own families. Uh, And in a much smaller but growing way it's why people in the west who try to live open and authentic christian lives in the public eye find it extremely difficult to do so without being viewed with suspicion by a, a secular society it's why it's why people like us when we become christians and we start telling people that we've become christians and we start trying to live as god wants us to well we start taking flack for it don't we from our friends or our school friends our work colleagues and so on people who are not christians And they want us to compromise and they want us to back off and not take it so seriously because now it's starting to interfere with how you're living. They don't really like that very much. you'll, You'll be tolerated, of course, providing you keep quiet about your faith. Providing you don't take a stand for righteousness or want to challenge the spirit of the age in some way. But when you do, when you want to be free to live and speak openly for Christ... Well, John says, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Expect the children of the devil to hate the children of God. But John's point here is effectively to say, expect it from the world, but make sure you're not doing the same thing. Make sure that you are not characterized by hatred towards your brothers and sisters, like Cain was. Because we show ourselves to be God's children by loving our fellow Christians. In other words, friends, if, if we find ourselves nursing the kind of, you know, hatred towards someone in, in our church or another Christian because they they seem to be growing maybe and we, we're not, and we wish they just get lost because they're a perpetual reminder of our rebellion. Friends, if that's our, our approach, we should not have confidence that we are even a true Christian. Because, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers whoever doesn't love abides in death and you don't need to physically murder someone to be like Cain do you verse 15 everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him so we need to see whether our our attitudes towards our church family are hateful not simply our, our actions Because the children of the the devil are characterised by hatred towards the children of God. But the children of God are characterised by love for each other. Friends, we love one another
1: in the Christian family. So is that you? Can
0: we take the love test and see that we are genuine Christians because we love our Christian brothers and sisters can we do that now at this point we could easily feel a bit uncertain maybe about the answer to that question we could be thinking to ourselves well what does John actually mean by love here you know whether I pass the love test here may depend on what what John means by love and and that might particularly be a question for us when when often love is seen perceived in today's world as, as just being a feeling maybe, that I have. So, so if I don't feel gushes of love towards my brothers and sisters in Christ, should I be worried that I'm not a real Christian? I don't think John means that. Um, it, it's important we have the right definition of love, uh, isn't it? Not a, not a faulty one. Um, and I think that's what John then spells out for us in the next couple of verses. Ha, have a look, because we, we've seen what love is not. That, that's exemplified in Cain. But have a look at verses 16 to 18 now and see what love is which is exemplified in Christ. Uh, have a look at verse 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And, and you'll notice that he's, John's making a deliberate contrast there, isn't he, between Cain on the one hand and Christ on the other. And, and the contrast couldn't be greater, could it? Cain... Cain sees Abel's righteousness and he's filled with hate. Whereas Christ sees our unrighteousness and he's filled with compassion. Cain offers a token sacrifice on the basis of what he wants. Christ offers himself as a sacrifice on the basis of what his father wants. Cain seeks to take life because he hates. Christ seeks to give life because he loves. Do do, do you see the contrast? In Cain, we see hatred revealing itself in murder. In Christ, we see love revealing itself in sacrifice. And and where is all that seen? It's seen on the cross, isn't it? It's seen, verse 16, as he laid down his life. For us, So you see, friends, God doesn't merely tell us that he loves us from the security and comfort of, of heaven. But he shows us that he loves us by laying down his life for us on the cross. Sacrificing himself in our place to pay for our sin for us. And, and, and so satisfying his justice and demonstrating his love. That, that's what the cross achieves, isn't it? And friends, without it, we're done for. But Jesus faced it so that we wouldn't
1: have to. And that, says John, is love.
0: That's love. And and not only is that love, but that is the love that we are to copy, he says. End of verse 16. He laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do, do, Do you see John's point? Love here is not simply an attitude, it's an action, right? It's not primarily about what we feel for each other, but how we deal with each other. And I think that's quite helpful, don't you? If if I'm wanting to know that I'm a genuine Christian by taking the love test here, it's helpful to know, isn't it, that it's not about my gushing feelings, It's about laying down my life for my brothers and sisters. It's about love that gives without counting the cost. It's about love that doesn't weigh up whether or not that love is deserved. It's about love that is entirely without self-interest. But even if we think we might be prepared to do that, how would we ever know? You know, chances are I'll never be placed in a position of having to lay down my life for anyone, let alone a brother or sister in Christ. So, so how would I know that I'd be prepared to do that? How would I know that my love is self-sacrificial like that, and so therefore that my faith is genuine? How would I know? I think that's the kind of uh, thing John anticipates in uh, verse 17, doesn't he? Have a look at verse 17. Um. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you see the point? Taking the taking the love test here is not about simply examining our words to our brothers and sisters to make sure we express love to them. But it's about examining our actions to make sure that we're demonstrating love to them. It's quite easy for us, isn't it, to tell people that we'll pray for them. Or to express some empathy. Or to speak some words of encouragement. In other words, to love in words without that love also being seen in our actions. It's quite easy to do that, isn't it? But John's point here in verse 18 is that it's the deed that confirms the truth of the word. In other words, love expressed only in words but never in deeds, well, that's that's soon shown up to be empty. But loving words that are accompanied by loving action shows that our love is genuine. So so to take the, the love test here so that we can know that our faith in Christ is genuine, well, it's to look at what we're doing and why we're doing it it's the evidence that our heart has been transformed by christ now of course that that doesn't mean that you know we don't speak loving words to each other unless we're also in a position to demonstrate the action that inaction in some way as well but it means that it's what we do more than what we say that exposes whether we really do love Our brothers and sisters. So so verse 17, if you have material goods, in other words, if you're not materially destitute yourself and you see a brother or sister in genuine need and yet you're quite content to kind of sit back, do nothing, well, is is that the kind of love that God demonstrated to you on the cross? But actually the application goes way beyond how we use our, our material goods, doesn't it? You know, as a church family, if we see our children needing teaching, if we see our sick or housebound needing visiting, if we see our discouraged needing encouragement, well, then teach
1: them, visit them, come alongside them.
0: I think it's as practical and down-to-earth as that, isn't it? But, but of course, all of that hangs on the fact that we'll be meeting with God's people in the first place so that we can demonstrate love to them like that. We, we can't do that, can we, when we're not present. Uh, you know, I'm sure, as, you know, as Bible-believing Christians, we can talk about the church being a family, being a community, being a body, and so on. We can probably reel off some scriptures that teach that. But it's easy enough to talk about it without actually getting involved in each other's lives, isn't it? It's one thing to get excited about the idea of love but without ever getting stuck into actually serving one another. Can, can, I, can I make an observation? And an observation I've noticed many times over um, my time in, in ministry has been that Christians who remain on the fringes of church life, you know, who are fairly irregular on a Sunday, not really involved too much midweek either, don't get involved in sharing their lives with their Christian brothers and sisters, but they're more inclined to keep themselves to themselves, They are the ones who struggle with doubting their faith the most. And that's not really surprising, is it? Because not only are they starving themselves of the the God-given means of them keeping going in in the Christian life, in other words, coming together, hearing from from God through his word, being built up together, but actually they're also depriving themselves of a God-given means of being assured that they're genuine Christians namely loving their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's John's point here, isn't it? If if you've got no desire in you to actively love your fellow Christians by serving them, which necessitates meeting with them and sharing your life with them, you should not feel confident that your faith in Christ is real. If you won't meet with God's people in order to sacrificially love them, well, you may have good cause to doubt that you're a Christian. Because genuine Christians love their fellow believers. It's a sign that our faith is genuine. On the other hand, therefore, if you're someone who does do that, you know, as much as you're able to do that, sometimes our, our circumstances don't allow us to do that as much as we like, but if that is our heartbeat, if we are seeking to do that as we're able, We have every right to take that as evidence of real faith in Christ. It's legitimate grounds for saying, you know, praise God, even though I'm not doing it as well as I'd like, You know, even though I fail to do it sometimes, and I have to come back to the cross and ask for forgiveness and pardon. Actually, by God's grace, I am showing love to God's people. And the Bible says that's a sign that he's done a genuine work in me. And and that I can have confidence that my faith in Christ is real, do you see?
1: And that's the point of his letter, of course, isn't it?
0: He wants us to have confidence that our faith is real. And and that's actually the point in the rest of this passage. Um, So we've seen what love is not, that's exemplified by Cain. We've seen what love is, that's exemplified in Christ. I think his final point here in verses 19 to 24... Is that what love uh, sorry yeah what love produces is confidence because have you noticed this have you noticed this in your own life even when we're genuine Christians, even when we really do trust in Christ, we are seeking to live lives of, of self sacrificial love for one another even when when inward change is showing itself in outward action, even then we can still find verse nineteen that our hearts condemn us. In other words, that our, our kind of conscience says to us, oh yeah, you do, you do a bit, but you don't do nearly enough. You're not really loving enough. Look how often you fail. Can you really be sure you're a Christian? Does that sound familiar? Because we know, friends, what we're like, don't we? we? We know what's going on in our hearts. We know how far short we fall of how loving we ought to be. And, of course, that often has the effect of undermining our confidence, doesn't it? That we really do belong to God's family. Our doubts remain. They get us down. Well, John gets that here and he addresses it. Have a look at at verse 19. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. And I want us to notice something there, friends. John is not telling us to deny the condemnation of our hearts. Or to kind of, you know, shrug it off, sweep it under the carpet. When our conscience says to us, you failed again, Steve. You're not nearly as loving as you should be. John is not telling me to deny that. Because actually even that is a sign of God at work. He's told us in chapter 1, hasn't he, that it's when we do deny our sin and claim that we have no sin. That's when the truth is not in us. So so we don't deny the condemnation of our hearts, but rather uh, that should encourage us to respond to the condemnation of our hearts by seeing that God knows more. Verse 20, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. In other words, he knows exactly what we're like. He knows better than we do the extent or lack of it of our love for others. How often we fail, what's going on in our hearts, even when our actions appear to others like they're loving. He knows all of that. And yet he, verse 20, is greater than our hearts. You see, friends, we look at our sin and think we're bad enough. Our hearts condemn us. But if we could see ourselves as God sees us, our hearts would condemn us even more. But although God sees us exactly as we are, he knows that we're more sinful than even we think we are.
1: Yet, he says to us, you are mine. I sent my son to die for you.
0: He bled to forgive you. So however much your heart condemns you, there's no condemnation that will come from me. I'm greater than your heart. Now, friends, that's a brilliant truth, isn't it? When you feel crushed by sin and failure. And it's here so that you don't allow what your condemning heart says to you to turn you away from Christ, but that you allow what Christ says in response to that to propel you back to Him. Do you see? When our hearts condemn us, well, God is there to remind us that we are forgiven and that our condemnation has been taken by Christ on the cross. And the result, verse 21, is therefore confidence. If our heart does not condemn us because we've been reminded that God is greater than our hearts, then we'll have confidence before him. In other words, we'll be able to come to him not with, not with fear that he'll condemn us, But with confidence that Christ has dealt with our condemnation.
1: And and that, says John, will make a difference when we pray. Have a look at verse 22.
0: And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. In other words, when when we come to him in in prayer, as as those who do what he commands and what pleases him, well, he answers our prayers because we're praying for what he wants. (laughs) We're praying for what he commands and for what pleases him. And what does he command? What does please him? Verse 23. This is his command, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another Just as he has commanded us. So what pleases God and so what he commands is that we believe in his son and we love one another. That's what pleases him. That's what he commands. That we have faith in our son, uh, in his son, and that we have love for one another. And, And so when we're praying that, when we're praying for faith and love, he answers our prayer. Of course he does because that's what he wants too. It's what pleases him. It's what he commands. And friends, do you see how that adds to our assurance? Because I I don't know about you, but when my heart condemns me, when I'm feeling crushed by the weight of my sin, the last thing I feel like doing is praying. I feel too ashamed to pray. I I think there's no way he's going to want to hear from me. But when I'm reminded that although my heart may condemn me, that God does not because my condemnation has been paid for by Christ on the cross. And so I'm going to come to him in prayer anyway and pray for greater faith and greater love. Well, what do I find when I do that? I find that in his amazing mercy, he hasn't abandoned me after all. He does want to hear from me. Indeed, he answers my prayer for faith and love. And and as I find him continuing to answer my prayer, that answered prayer is further evidence for me that I'm a real, genuine Christian. Do, Do you see how it works? Friends, faith in Christ, love for others, is the heartbeat of the Christian life. Faith in Christ is the root. Love for your fellow Christians is the fruit If you're loving your fellow Christians, it's a sign that you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Real faith in Jesus exhibits itself in love for our brothers and sisters. The two go together. And if we're doing both authentically, even though we won't be doing either one perfectly, well, we can know that we are his. And what's more, verse 24 Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. In other words, if we are obeying both commands here, believing in his son and loving one another, we can be confident that we have God's spirit dwelling in us. Because faith expressing itself in love is the result of his work in our lives. Do you see, friends, he wants us to know He wants us to be confident that we're real Christians, and so he gives us the love test. We show that our faith in Christ is real by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's not telling us this to drive us away from Christ in in kind of despair, but to propel us towards him, assuring us that, that, that even though our hearts may condemn us, he does not. Because Christ has taken all that condemnation on himself, on the cross. And so we can come before him with confidence. Trusting that he will receive us because of Christ. Delighting to answer our prayer for, for greater trust in his son and greater love for one another. Should we pray? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for, um, for this passage of your word that, that you've written to, to both challenge us and yet at the same time encourage us as well. Um, thank you that your desire for us um, in, in these verses is, is not to condemn us, but it's to lead us to a place of confidence that our faith in Christ is real. So please, by your spirit, Would you use it to that end, we pray. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.